ride Just with it. Clicking the glasses again. Nice. No, I do it's like nice. the kind of informal intro. It's nice. It makes it friendly, amateurish. We'd have to do the clinking of the glasses, but I think you've just done the interesting <laughs> podcast, Andy. <laughs> so, welcome everybody to the very first Around the Open Fire podcast. Without the clinking of the glasses. Without the clinking of the glasses, which happened on take two. This is take three, because I'm stuck in my vlogging ways and can't get used to just relaxing and going with the flow but that is something that we could all do with i'm sitting here with andy smitherman hi <laughs> the mysterious man that is and josh price who will be producing this podcast every single week for us thank you you hero good evening <laughs> <laughs> and just as a little bit of background before we get into it this idea came about about a year ago whilst josh and i were doing an experiment living in a little cottage in surrounded by 600 acres of woodland in Sussex and we thought it would be great to make a little production studio in the third bedroom of the cottage. Turns out the neighbours were a nightmare and we ended up going back to the woodland, the woodland, which was where this whole project began in the first place. But we kept the gear with us and so now I'm sitting in my hut at the back of my semi-detached house in Leatherhead with all this gear with these two lovely guys with a glass of red wine and the open fire today is represented by a very large wax candle. So can't always have a roaring bonfire, but I think it's important to be around the fire, even if it's a very domesticated one. <laughs> and the way this podcast is going to work now, instead of it being mine, we're going to try and do a community experiment, really, where we share it. And so today I have the privilege and excitement to interview my mate, Andy Smitherman, and have a chat about... <laughs> his work and how this podcast is going to work. But then the format will be that next week, Andy will be the host and he will bring somebody on as his guest, kind of inculcate them with the model of the podcast, interrogate them terribly, <laughs> and then let them do the same to somebody else. So I guess the culture that we create today will probably have a bit of a bearing on the rest of the project, don't you think? Yeah, and who knows where it will go. Yeah, I would love to imagine that it will end up in different continents with different kinds of voices maybe in different languages even because we're whacking the whole thing in a suitcase absolutely the we gear got... the uh little info little gifts and stuff like that yeah the uh, values yeah. the kind of the rule book or the guidelines and josh is the man with the task to retrieve it if it gets lost um to make sure it gets on to the next host if there's any issues and uh, I have no idea what adventures you're about to go on to try and make sure that we have a smooth uh, sailing ship each week on this podcast. But good luck to you, sir. Thank you. I'm prepared for whatever it is. If it does end up in a different continent, I'll, I'll happily take the flight. Good. <laughs> we'll hold you to that. As long as it's a nice one. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> a good destination. Uh, I'm pretty sure you'll be flying in cattle class in, uh, <laughs> in the luggage if you're not careful. Does anyone and in Hawaii want to host the podcast <laughs> <Yeah>. next? <laughs> Oh dear. And worst case scenario, you can always phone in on the number that Dave set up. Absolutely, yeah. So you remember the, that number, Dave? Yeah, what's that You've number? got the number written down. So we've set up a phone number that gets sent. Any voicemails that you guys leave on this phone number will get sent through to us on email, which means they'll have like a nice quality recording to them that we can inject 
into the podcast itself. And so part of what we're going to discuss each week is what you guys want to talk about, what what's really going on for you, what you think's missing in the public dialogue, and that will inform some of our conversations. So that number, that number <laughs> is 0208 191 8728. 0208 191 8728. And you can just ring that number at any time and leave a voicemail. Just tell us whatever information you want to tell us about yourself and something real, something authentic to you, something your view about the way the world is, or a question to pose to others and those that are sharing the podcast that week. Um, and we did a little test of that when I had uh, a car with a car phone recently before it died on me. And some of the voicemails I got sent were just incredible. And we'll try and get into a couple today, but the quality of them without this sort of voice over IP service was not really good enough. But we'll give it a go. This is all a bit of an experiment and a test. We don't quite know where it's going to go. So do bear with us. And if we have to make tweaks and adaptions to the model, then Josh might be the voice that sort of lets you know each week what things have been tweaked and changed, what new bits have been added to the suitcase um, to help guide the next hosts. But with all that said, um, a massive, massive thank you and welcome to Andy Smitherman. Mate, it's a joy. Love it. Have you ever actually sat down in here in the hut with me before? Yeah, I've been in this cold hut many a time. <laughs> and never a chance has gone to complain about it. <laughs> Pretty much everything I've done with you, mate, it's been cold. <laughs> in the heart. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, <laughs> warm hearts makes it all work. Yeah, real joy to start it off with you today. But for those who haven't heard your dulcet tones before... Mm. <laughs> <laughs> mm. Your sexy tones. Why don't you tell us a bit about what you do and what on earth means that you end up sitting in this very cold hut with me? Wow. So I'm 47 years old. <clears throat> yes. <laughs> 47 years old. I'm kind of, I feel like I'm a mixture between a grumpy old guy and uh, uh, somebody who uh, is uh, wanting to fall down a rabbit hole. <laughs> And go into some strange wonderland. So, yeah, we've known each other for, wow, how long now? I want to say about 10 years. But yeah, it could be a I lot longer. I reckon like 99. So how long is what? that? Yeah. I came down here in 99 and I remember seeing you in some youth group and my first impression. Well, it's two impressions. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, dear. <laughs> Don't believe anything he says. <laughs> Two impressions. One was, wow, this guy can eat. <laughs> I nearly spat my red wine everywhere there for the record. And, wow, this guy can talk. <laughs> I could see that one coming. That was the cheap shot. But then this year's been different. This, yeah, this massively year, different. We've stepped into a different, a different journey. So, And there's a good reason for that. Um, so why don't you tell everybody what your journey's been about? I've always loved writing. So as a kid, I always loved writing, but I was one of those uh, strange kids where I was always in the back background, hidden in the shadows type stuff, and used to always stumble my words and all that kind of stuff. So I found that the best way to communicate was through writing, writing little love letters to people I had a crush on to um, downloading my thoughts type thing. And so that's kind of carried on over the years. 
But interestingly, in that space, I then started to value the the hidden stories mm-hmm. and stuff like that. So I got I'm a massive fan of history and stuff and uh, social history. And I started researching into that, writing about that. And you you stumble upon that crazy moment where you realize that the, the stories that you tell yourself about social change and about those heroic figures that you kind of look up to, um, there's a story behind that story. And then there's a story behind that story and that story. And you eventually get to a point where you discover the untold stories, the hidden characters, the people who sacrificially live their lives in different ways. And either their stories have been ignored because they've been considered mundane and unexciting, or the people have co-opted them or hijacked them for their own gain. So just on that then, um, you know, we've talked about this many times over the years, but I don't know if I have talked about this specifically, that one of my favourite films is Amazing Grace, which is the story of William Wilberforce yeah. and the slave trade. And William Wilberforce was a young politician uh, from a shipping family in Liverpool, I believe. And so the story goes and makes me cry and inspires and motivates me. Uh, always has done since I was probably 18 when I watched it. Um, He was part of this group called the Clapham Sec that are sort of celebrated as this group of social reformers. And he took on two big challenges with his life. And one of them was the reformation of manners. And one of them was abolishing the slave trade. And and he did it. You know, they abolished it. And, um, you know, so when I look at that story, what 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 does what you're saying do to that story? How how might you have a different approach to that story with what you've learned? So rightly so, we should be praising those type of characters because they contributed to a change in thinking and a radical shift in society. I think the danger that we easily fall into, that I fall into, is is the default of looking for the heroic figure. Mm -hmm. So we narrow a storyline down uh, predominantly to one figure and that figure is usually charismatic in some way or evangelical in their approach and uh, often male and uh, a tidy story that has a little bit of hardship and a little bit of victory and stuff like that and as we do that we we start to ignore the complexity and beauty that was around that movement so we could say that William Wilberforce was the abolition of slavery type thing. But another way of looking at it was there was actually there was a massive movement on the ground, grassroots, uh, diverse shift that involved uh, protests to um, the reimagination of business and education practices, to uh, uh, protest movements and discussion forums within the high end of society to the low end. Mm. Uh, And so there was this radical sort of disturbance Mm. and uh, you couldn't control it. And there was not one tidy definition that you could put over it. But collectively, it carried something that irritated our conscience and irritated our heart. And... William Wilberforce was there in Parliament to get some of that over the line. Mm -hmm. 
Um, but he couldn't have got that over the line without other groups that were happening around that. And I think it's important to acknowledge all that because it then values our own contributions. It then mm-hmm. values the, the world that we live in. We could easily just sit back and wait for another William Wilberforce. And then that gives us the excuse to be apathetic or, um, which I think is a greater injustice, which is that we we devalue our own contribution and devalue mm. our own giftings. And if if we shift that to actually that there is great value in you just changing how you operate your purse, mm-hmm. how you distribute your cash, how you operate with your family, how you operate in your workplace or in your school um, because that carries a ripple effect and adds a bit of colour into this tapestry of movement taking place. I know you did a Masters in Narrative Theory, didn't you? Wow. Sounds very swanky, doesn't (laughs) it? doesn't it? (laughs) Makes you sound very legitimate all of a sudden. Um, But I'm interested in that. You know, I'm interested yeah. in the stories we tell. I think that's what you're discussing with narrative theory. Is there a little cherry picking you could give us, Layman, from what you learn in your masters about narrative theory? Glad you asked. <laughs> uh, so one way of looking at narrative theory is this idea that the world is created through stories. Mm-hmm. So, uh, and stories are really important to us. So the stories that we choose to listen to, we ignore the the stories that we value, the stories that we sort of acknowledge, but kind of put to one side a little bit. All of those contribute to how we as storytelling beings start to interpret the world around us. And it also starts to help us interpret our own role in that Mm -hmm. big story so shakespeare talks about that the world is a stage and we're all players in it type thing it's the same sort of idea that um, consciously or subconsciously we interact with the world through some sort of narrative in our head and we play our part in it type thing so stories are important if you kind of go down that route and so if stories are important and stories help us interpret the world and help us understand what is around and what we consider as real and unreal, what we choose to uh, observe and ignore, then it leads us to um, ask the question, what stories are we engaging with and how are we engaging with those stories? And that's where I think narrative theory kicks in around the critique of the heroic narrative Mm -hmm. because if you go down that route then you can start seeing the ripple effects Mm -hmm. whether we consciously think of it or not of how it's starting to define how we interpret world events how we interpret our own contribution and what we value so almost that study kind of gives one an awareness of the kind of stories that they are in observing speaking etc yeah, I mean, there's a whole load of um, contradictions in the whole space as well, you know. <laughs> of course. Um, and it's not perfect by any means, mm-hmm. but I I wanted to do that. I wanted to do that study just to get my head around why is it that we so often default into narrowing a storyline mm-hmm. to a to a hero. 
And so that leads me on to the other part of your mysterious and secret <coughs> life that I, I, I know about you, which is that you haven't just written about social movements or considered the critique of these heroes, but that you've actually spent probably, I don't know, you'll tell us, but 10 years or so working alongside social activists, grassroots people, hanging in the margins, trying to do things different, trying to reimagine stuff. And so firstly, tell us a bit about that. But secondly... I'm interested to know, applying your theoretical thinking and your awareness of stories and then actually getting down and dirty with these guys and girls, what what is it that you think you see and observe that really stops some movements from taking root in the way that they could? What, what prevents things from get, getting to their potential? I'm going to answer that in a different way. <laughs> <laughs> Somehow I knew that was coming. One of the most precious things I've observed in that space is, uh, which is a thing that's given me hope, because I think without it, I'd have I'd have turned in on my on myself and kind of gone, "Woe is me, woe is the world" type angle. Is that you realise that there's a ton of beautiful, precious stories taking place, and some of those stories of social change is happening in the headlines. And they're getting praise and potentially loads of funding in different ways and resources. And then there's a whole load of stories and contributions that are way beyond the headlines, hidden in the undergrowth and um, carry the characteristics of, of sacrificial love. And what does it mean to love yourself? What does it mean to love one another? And to really embrace that. When you start being around that, um, it screws you up. Really, I mean, it screws me up completely because you see your own arrogance and your own self-centeredness, and you realise, you know, I, I realise I can blag it, you know, blag it so often. And so that period of time, it's probably been about fifteen years, as a as something official being done. But I think back in this kind of therapy session over a candle. <clears throat> um, there's, it's probably been a story of my life, really. It's kind of you you just, you come across these stories and it just shows you that there's a different way of living. And there's something very beautiful about it, but there's also a cost that I think prevents, which gets to your question, which which gets to potentially why I don't do it often and why other places struggle with it sometimes is that the cost um, is hidden. The cost of love eventually leads to some form of, of sacrifice. And that could be a sacrifice of ego or sacrifice of resource um, or something deeper. And <clears throat> if I reflected back on myself, when you get to that point, my default is I want people to know about it. I want people to know about my cost. Because I go back to the heroic storyline. I want people to know about my troubles and my tribulations to get to this point of of social change. And um, I think that period of time where you see that work of activism take place in grassroots and it's hidden messes up your own ego and, and angle of self-worth. So tell us what's been going on this year then, because, I mean, you've had this history of writing, 
You've done all this social activism, learning about narrative theory. But I know firsthand that this year has been quite different to the rest of it for you. So tell us about it. <laughs> the the table's turned, isn't it? Because you've... <laughs> <laughs> It's been glorious. It's been cathartic and wonderful. I can't tell you how much joy it's provided watching Smithers Square. <laughs> so I'm a natural introvert. My history with books is that I write them and then I don't do anything anything with them really. Um or I distribute them in a in a way that's uh that other people do, type thing. And um What do you mean by that? I just let um hide. I think mm-hmm. is how it's done. <laughs> <laughs> Hide and have somebody else do the promotion. There's been something that I've been walking with for years and years and a story that's been in my head for a very long time. And most of my writing has been nonfiction around this angle of social change, of retelling some famous stories in a different way. And then I kind of, about four or five years ago, I I just woke up one morning thinking I've just got to delve my head into uh, the world of Dickens a bit more. And I love Dickens. As a kid, I loved Dickens. But Dickens was an interesting period of time. We're talking Christmas Carol. Christmas Carol, Great Expectations, yep. uh, Oliver Twist. Oh, yeah. Victorian, you know, Oliver Twist. Yeah, I mean, I haven't actually read it, but I know what you're talking about. I'm picking up what you're putting down. Uh, so Victorian Britain, 19th century type stuff. The context of, of that period of time is there's a, there's a term that we use a lot around social history, which is a term called Dickensian dickensian times and and that was a a phrase that sort of reflects how dickens would write as a as a person who would create stories but base his fictional stories upon real life situations and those real life situations often focused upon social injustice and poverty we're talking like aspects of poverty that would just shock us and we use that term Dickensian now is just as a little bit of a shock mechanism that, oh, we're going back to Dickensian times and all this kind of things. Uh, the idea to start looking into Dickens was I, I found that period of time really fascinating because Dickens as a, a social commentator who's picking up on things that were happening during that period of time highlighted an interesting movement that happened of imagination, of creativity, of, I think, of an expression of love that radically shifted how people engaged with one another. And it impacted all aspects of life from parliament to uh, economy, so business to education to home life to... Uh, ecology and the environment and the environment with engagement with food and food distribution but when you look for heroic figures they're few and far between and I just wanted to play around with that period of time because I just found it quite fascinating and in that research there is a really cool thing that started to emerge which was Dickens articulated that period of time 
through uh, a little phrase, which was, it was a movement that seemed to uh, challenge our ignorance and selfish want. Mm -hmm. So it was, it was something that was taking place in society that was challenging our ignorance of what was around or challenging our ignorance that, of the things that we're complicit to. And it was a movement that was challenging our selfishness. And so put it into another form of language. It would be uh, the challenging the way we um, viewed life where all of a sudden we're thinking beyond trying to get the cheapest pint of milk or our biggest house or everything that kind of like is centered around ourself type thing. Is there something deeper that was taking place that was challenging our first port of call, which was thinking about what's good for me. And so I just started delving into that. And those two themes of ignorance and selfish want is pretty much in every one of Dickens' writings, mm -hmm. uh, sometimes in uh, subtle and sometimes in blatant ways. And that just sparked my interest. And I was going to write it as a bit of an academic piece. And that kind of exposes, again, I think one of my shortfalls, which is I thought that's the way to get the message out. And that's the way that I will get uh, a little bit of, it will give me a little bit of worth. Mm -hmm. I thought the academic thing would give me the, the worth sort of thing. And I remember having this crazy dream and uh, with all those thoughts in my head and realizing that I needed to do something different. And I started writing a story. And so for four years, I've been working on this story. Is that so, a novel this time? So a novel, fiction story is my first fiction how's story. It, how's it been compared to writing accounts of history and social movements? That's been beautiful. I yeah. don't want to go back to, <laughs> I don't want to leave the world of fiction. Well, that's a good start. You're doing the right thing then. But I tell you what I've really enjoyed is that when you write nonfiction, you're so constrained to the facts mm -hmm. that there's just, you, you only can go so far with looking at some of that material. Where with fiction, you can, you can use those spaces and then um, go a bit kind of Lewis Carroll. Um, Don't know what you mean. So a bit of Alice in Wonderland okay. type stuff. Uh, in, introduce strange creatures and okay. uh, weird landscapes and stuff like that and just go crazy in your in your head type stuff kind of like it it allows you to start approaching topics and stimulating thought where you're not coming in as an, as an expert you're not coming in as this is what you've got to think it's like hey just think about this think about this topic play around with some themes and then allow that kind of yeast of that story to just rest in a person's imagination and then allow that to play around in in that person's head in different ways and see where that thought or provocation goes i think that's why we love stories um like from authors like george orwell you know mm. with 1984 animal farm um, Fahrenheit 451, Ray, you know, it's these live with us because, mm -hmm. in one way, they weren't sort of dictating to us how we should think, mm -hmm. but they were just, it was kind of like the Wizard of Oz sort of scenario where they're just like Toto the dog, just grabbing hold of the curtain and just pulling it back a little bit, uh -huh. and you just get to see the levers mm -hmm. and some old guy pulling the levers, and you think, okay, that's a little bit different to the wizard that I thought mm. was around 
or the the young kid who sees the king walking down the road and everyone's kind of like saying the king's got clothes on and the, and the little boy says actually i can see your ass with a boil on it you know mm. this type of thing and so <laughs> i think that's the power of what stories can do and i think mm. I, i've i've enjoyed delving into the power of what fiction can do in that space mm-hmm. so <clears throat> i've got a question for you but before we go on to that i really just want you to just tell us what the book is what is the book it's called paradox wish you were earned here and it's a reimagination of a christmas carol a modern reinterpretation of a christmas carol with a bit of stephen king and neil gaiman kind of squeezed in the pages yeah and that leads me on to again another recurring part of this podcast i think which is to ask you the question what do you think we're not talking about simple as that it's a dead simple question could be interpreted in a thousand different ways it could be we right here right now it could be we the news we the country yeah. we the world but what do you think we're not talking about I'm going to answer that a little bit differently. I can't believe it. I'm flabbergasted. Can you pass the red wine before you do? Uh, we're out. We're out. No. Seriously, we're out. Oh, dear. It was just a mini bottle like the one that you get on the plane. That's, that's not true. I want to ask the question to myself, what am I not seeing? What are you not seeing? Yeah. Or what am I not talking about? Okay. So, um, and why are you doing that? Why are you reframing it? I've got to do it. It's my privilege to do it in this <laughs> in this moment. Why are you reframing it? <laughs> I think there's something very important about being vulnerable. Mm-hmm. Actually, it starts with myself, and I can spout off a whole load of stuff and kind of deflect it onto kind of. Um, deflect it away from myself but actually uh, i think it kind of starts with me i think that's partly the answer the what am i not talking about is my own contribution sure really so this is not the a a a plug for the book but it's it's a reference to a thinking that has just disturbed me for years now which is that space of just how bloody ignorant I am and how dreadfully selfish and self-centered I am. So the way I digest news, the way I create a little protective bubble around myself makes me ignorant of what is happening around. And then when I pass certain blatant examples of injustice or pain, I excuse myself with little hat tips of charitable deeds but don't hold the mirror up to myself and to have that dorian gray that so um that kind of storyline of dorian gray where he sees his real self in the in the mirror that i don't hold up that mirror to myself and see my own contribution that somewhere along the way my decision process has or my way of living has has com- contributed to this moment of injustice. And so I, of- I often kind of move away from that space or I don't challenge my selfishness. 
And so I think that's a really good starting space for me. I've learned recently to just appreciate craftsmanship. I thought I've, in a different way, it's like I've, I've always enjoyed craftsmanship. I've appreciated that kind of, that element of people just taking time over something or investing their heart into, into a piece of work and it coming out in a particular way. If you think about the lessons I've learned around this book, it's like it was the the easiest option for the book was to was to pitch it to agents to fall into that particular publishing machine and to get it printed out in a particular way that's usually based upon cost, cheap material and stuff like that. And so what does it mean to kind of step away from that and to reimagine what could that book look like and then you go a little bit deeper as well what does it mean to craft that book what does it mean to look over every aspect of this so that then had a knock-on effect with a critique of just how i how i've engaged with other products around and how i default quite easily into convenience Mm -hmm. where i choose to shop Mm -hmm. what type of stuff that i I buy and then my kind of temptation to just get everything instantly or I want to create something instantly. Mm -hmm. Um, So are you saying that by going through the process of creating your own thing in your own way without sort of being framed by what the machine is demanding of you, that not only have you produced something that you love and care about and feel proud of, but that also by nature of making something by the nature of making something it's made you think about all the other things you're consuming and engaging with differently as a result yeah yeah and it was it, it was just another little glitch in the matrix yeah. if we do it that way it's like the out of i had those thoughts before yeah but it's just it's just another layer it's taking mm. me deeper into this yeah. thing where of making me critique just this system that i've bought into yeah that might not be the real system Mm. but i think that uh that resonates with me a lot and makes me kind of come alive a bit because when i think about the whole corcovado journey of making stuff in the woods whether that's planting stuff making huts uh making videos whatever it is typically making stuff really badly for the first time, things that I've never, <laughs> never tried to do before. Even today, trying to take this old picture frame from the tip. It's and a beautiful frame. Mate. Thanks, man. Shame about the wonky picture. <laughs> yeah, inside. well, don't tell everyone about that. <laughs> but yeah, so got this old picture frame and uh, got a digital photo that actually Josh took at Brenda's cottage of a fox glove, which I love, and put it in there and basically smashed the glass twice today as I was trying to put the frame in, uh, the picture in the frame for the first time. And it's now hanging on the wall, slightly wonky, but it's there and it's done and I'll sleep on it and have a look at it again tomorrow. But this is just another one of those projects of making for the first time. And I really, I really, really believe that the act of making together, whether it was the dinner that we just sort of cooked up together, um, or whether it's that picture frame or whether it's the book or huts or growing stuff, I think you're right that that's something really important to this community because it gets you on the inside of what otherwise seems like a 
locked down machine, something yeah. that's unchangeable, irreversible, unknowable. And actually, if you just start getting under the hood of it, you realize it's not so scary in here. It's like the it's like the monsters in the closet kind of thing. You just get in there and you realize, okay, we can actually deal with this. And yeah. I think the act of making is actually incredibly rebellious, really, in the consumeristic capitalistic society that we're living in. Yeah, absolutely. And it kind of reframes what we value as well. Go on. You know, it's like so this this picture frame. That, <laughs> He's smirking, by the way. <laughs> this picture frame that is hanging on your wall in this cold cabin. <laughs> um the way you told that story is kind of you invited me into it. Mm. And so all of a sudden it's kind of even though I can see this kind of wonky <laughs> image. Dusty, uh, wonky, dated. Yeah. Th- there's a value that I've appreciated mm. with this thing. It is completely different to just that you just bought this from a shop somewhere type thing. And I and it goes back to this um it's the it's the reconfiguring that we just go deeper there's something about the engagement of of making something of of seeing something evolve or or the, the collaboration or and even just you know you you're talking about who you went to for the glass and all that kind of stuff yeah. and then where you went to get the frame and all that kind of all these different stories coming together mm. and um i think it's important for us to get back to those sort of things because uh it might just be me but is is that there's a weight that lifts off you as well mm. you kind of just feel free kind of like you take this deep breath and think oh right there's a there's a different world i'm breathing in and it's mm. fresh mm. it's fragrant mm. uh we're skipping through the fields of bluebells <laughs> singing hand, hand in hand type thing well and on a practical level as well the future is going to look nothing like the past. Yeah. And we've got an incredible bouquet of <laughs> unanswerable, almost intractable problems ahead of us in the next 30 years. And not to be down about it, but the reality is that we need an unprecedented level of creative imagination <laughs> yeah. to see us through both technologically and the wisdom to go along with the technology yeah. over the next 30 years. So yeah, I think breeding a culture of creative reimagination, um, doing anything we can in our personal lives in making the practice of making yeah. uh, is, has got to be a good thing towards Absolutely, generating mate. more imagination. Your book, l- even just the act of me reading your novel, teaching me how to create pictures in my own mind. Um, this has got to be a good thing. We yeah, we yeah. cannot save ourselves or our kids with uh, business as usual. We need yeah. some kind of creative reimagination, which is the you know the loop, which is a lovely loop back to the the heroic kind of narrative thing, mm. which is the the history tells us that there's something very powerful in that that thing of movement of imagination and creativity of hacking the system in different ways, and when we acknowledge that actually just something very simple like doing that picture frame in a different way yeah um or doing something different in your home or in your workplace you might not have the great big headlines of world change Mm. 
this is doing something. This is causing a shift in thinking and not to uh, underestimate the power that that story mm. will linger on and will be told by somebody else, will be told by somebody mm. else and will provoke imagination and provocation. It's the seven handshakes mm. of Kevin Bacon thing <laughs> is that what you do, regardless of how big or small, that is going to cause a ripple effect. Mm. And I think we just need to value that. Absolutely. And on that hero story note, it would be, I think it would be a good time. Can I interject? Please into, do, Mr. Price. Into the podcast. Uh, and before, I'm really keen to listen to some some of the listeners' questions and, and hear some answers from you guys. But I want to, in this first episode, turn that question to you, Dave, as well, mm-hmm. about what we're not talking about. Well, firstly, we're not talking about how sexy you actually sound, Josh. I didn't realise how dulcet <laughs> your tones were until just now. Um, we'll come back to the, the callers in a second. So, so what what are we not talking about? What in in your interpretation of that question? I think a fully, I think any fully human response has an element of heart and an element of mind in it, and I think what Andy articulates in terms of our own mundane response in our daily lives with our purse, with our partners and uh, the tiny little actions we take. For me, that's the heart part that I totally resonate with and think that's absolutely the answer. And I guess the mind part, which I think I see in equal measure, is sort of looking at practically where are we? What's going on at that kind of practical level in society at this point? What's really going on? And I think, you know, mincing around in the woods for a year gave me a lot of time to think about this. And I really think that there's three key areas, and it's kind of shorthand what I'm about to say for a broader area, but that really don't get much airtime on the news with politicians, with those that are leading us, but are absolutely critical at an existential level, i.e. our existence depend on us creating some kind of response to these issues. And the first is the environmental crisis that we're in. Whether you look at the amount of crop rotations that we have left, um, whether you look at the biosphere and the amount of carbon that we're emitting, and the global heating situation that's coming as a result. It looks like that's going to come to a head at somewhere like 2050. If you look at technologically, so the first one would be the environment and the ecology and how we're treating it and getting serious about that. The second is the process we're going through of joining all of biological history with a machine and biology future, um, summed up most obviously in where we're at with artificial intelligence right now, but also genomics, robotics, and a few other fields that are making serious headway. And it'll actually be the joining of those that I think is like what will really provide an explosive moment. And the third part is really a symptom of the fact that our governance structures, I don't think are fit for purpose anymore, which is that we have this incredibly painful refugee crisis like 60 million people without not just without homes but without being accepted in the land that um well 
the, the land that they were from is no longer habitable and they're not accepted in, in a new place to make a home. And because of the ecological problems, they're all intertwined. We're looking at, could be by 2050, we might have, well, it depends who you speak to, between 250 million and a billion refugees, not just because of war and political issues, but because of environmental crisis as well. So I know we're covering a lot of topics, but for me, what we're not talking about, what isn't making its way into the public dialogue in the way that it should be, is environmental crisis, technological shift, and the refugee crisis. Does that answer your question, Josh? Yeah, I think it does a, a very lovely job of doing so. Yeah, you should do a podcast, Dave. <laughs> Cheers, mate. <laughs> But so do, do you think I'm doing? Do you think I'm doing fairness to you, Andy, as well, in what, how I'm framing your bit in amongst it? Oh, about the heart stuff. Yeah, yeah. So like I, my bias would be the heart. Um, but in the heart, there's always mind, and in the mind, there's always heart. You know, in that space, I think. And I think the 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 stuff that you're pushing with that, the the the, the positive challenge is that the, the these both things need each other, mm-hmm. and somehow we've we've got to create those spaces mm. um, where we acknowledge each other, and there's a synergy that both both of those spaces kind of can flourish. Mm-hmm. Um, so I love it, man. I love it. We need to make space for each other. But on that note. I'm going to scribble on this card something I'm going to whack into the suitcase for the next podcast as well. The next one will be you, but going on from there, I want to put in there, because we've spent a bit of time thinking about the values of of what does it mean to make space for each other? How do we build thick networks in George Monbiot's words? How do we build community effectively that allows us to support each other when we're going outside of the norm, status quo, the market, whatever the language is. And I think really we can kind of summarize that as what are the qualities of good friendship? Yeah. You know, what does it take to actually hold that space for each other? So if I put at the top, what does it take to be friends? And, uh, I'll kick off and then you go for the next one, yeah? No, don't put, don't put me on the spot. Come on. <laughs> All right, fine. I'll, I'll, you chime in when you're ready. So, Thank you. If there's, one thing, if there's one thing that I learned from being in the woods and learning about the trees and seeing how the plants and the bees and everything else interact is that there's this wonderful sense of symbiosis where... Um, as Tom Mansfield says, that everything has a stacked function, has more than one use, more than one purpose, incredibly evolved compared to the stuff that we cobble together. Mm. But that when all of this stuff works best is when there's a biodiversity, a strength in biodiversity. When you put stuff in rows, when you create uniformity, nature just doesn't work as well. And I think that lesson works across the board at a human level, at a philosophical level, making space for each other um, as well as in the biological world and I hope that it carries in the machine world as well so for me that's got to be the first the first thing to embrace in any kind of good friendship where we're holding space for each other is wanting to seek out diversity and enjoy it for everything all its challenges as well it's not easy always yeah 
And the second one, I mean, you should talk about this one, Smithers, because you pointed this out, because I came up with a couple of words, and then you added this one. Dependency. Dependency. Mm. Why don't you talk about that for a second? I like the idea that we need each other. Mm-hmm. And I know that word can carry sort of like a negative angle to it as well but flicking it to the positive is there's something very precious about knowing that you just can't do this on your own yeah and it it hits at your ego hits at your kind of self sort of focus and it also broadens your your worldview because i mean if i can't if i look at some of the projects i've been involved with and then brought in my mates it it just broadens that whole kind of possibility Mm. out and then you realize that actually their contribution their their way of seeing things their own sort of um networks just helps you in a in a a broader way Mm -hmm. um so i think dependency is just a really nice value that keeps us all in check and recognizes that we've all got something to contribute into that space Mm. large or small I think to add to that, what I love about the word dependence is that there's lots of different prefixes, independence, codependence, interdependence, and some of them are desirable and some of them are absolutely not desirable. I don't want to be in codependent relationships, but by having the relational word in there, it helps us to really think about how we relate to things. Yeah. And, and by having it in there, we have to think about how we relate to things, but know that we absolutely do need to be with each other. We can't be alone. Yeah. And that's a core value. Um, for me, the next one is being. Um, yeah, absolutely. Mate. As opposed to the doing. Yeah. Um, a lot of life is about, oh, what do you do for work then? <laughs> and um, inadvertently, how much money do you make? And the transactions of life and the busyness of life and the overstimulation of life and we all know that you know you've got a good friend when you can just sit there quietly with them (laughs) (laughs) waiting for that um no absolutely (laughs) like getting sinking to that lower level of being the human being not the human doing is in that quiet silence in that space is where we can find very interesting parts of life um and it's it's quite sacred really it's only special places and people that you can do that with um and it's it's a vital part of who we are we are human beings not the human doings yeah and i don't want to say too much more about it than that but i think tapping into that you haven't really got the full friendship experience or the full human experience if you're not in one way or another tapping into that space anything to add boys i've got a little story but what about you, Josh? I've just been uh, producing and not thinking about what you're talking about. <laughs> you're saying, yep, the levels are fine. Thank you very much. I was just admiring my handiwork with the levels, to be honest with you. <laughs> but okay. um, 
I think I think the the being one is important because you're right about doing and and often when you stop having the thing that you do with those people the friendships can stop mm. Mm. and and that that's problematic because often the things we do are dependent on many other factors that are unrelated to our friendships and so when those change we don't want to be losing friendships and i think also the depth of a friendship is is only surface level when you have to see them because you mm. you do something with them it breeds insecurity in a way or or mm. forces you to stay as you were when you might be growing or changing what you're doing so i, th- I agree with yeah. you it's uh, important to have relationships that are based on something deeper than just mm. the activities that we that we met through Very so good. Off a little tangent but it, i think it leads into it <laughs> So I'm taking my young daughter. <laughs> Terry's chocolate orange. <laughs> See, so all I can think of you, mate, is boy, this guy eats. <laughs> <laughs> something's changing, something's never do. Uh, so I'm taking my uh, young daughter down to the coffee shop to have the kind of baby Sheeno thing which is what you do when you've got like a really young kid. Um, and this is a few years back and it's one of my first moments that I've been doing this. And so it's a big thing. And we're walking and it, it's probably like a, in my head, I'm thinking it's like a 10 minute walk usually, but with a kid, it's probably going to be about 25 minutes, 30 minutes. We'll get down to the high street. We'll have our kind of little baby Chino type thing. Uh, we'll miss all the rush, the lunchtime rush and stuff like that. It'll be a great father and daughter type bonding moment type thing. And then get back home. So we leave the house. We start walking uh down and all of a sudden it's like my daughter is stopping and just looking at everything looking at a cracked brick looking at some weeds sticking through some pavement thing and then looking at the fields and i'm dragging her trying to get to this kind of this coffee shop so we can have this father-daughter kind of a bonding experience type thing and as this keeps dragging on i'm kind of getting more frustrated and my daughter is continually stopping and looking around and stuff. And then eventually um, we get to this field and it just gets worse because all of a sudden she's kind of looking at the butterflies and the and the snails and then she's following the butterfly and then in her head she, she's got this storyline that she starts crafting and then she starts telling me about the, the butterfly is trying to find the fairy princess and the fairy princess is like looking for this and it's just going on and on and on and I'm kind of like yeah yeah brilliant yeah fairy princess brilliant like this but it's still in my head I'm thinking this coffee shop moment is the bonding thing um and then eventually I switch and it's like, and then I kind of, okay, let's get, get get into this story. And so I'm acting out as the butterfly and, you know, all that kind of stuff. You do a little reenactment <laughs> for us now. It was a beautiful thing. I you know, just, just imagine that. Um, and then we eventually get to the coffee shop, which is by that time, the lunchtime rush. We hardly get a seat, but we, we find that we kind of squeeze into this kind of little corner and 
all of a sudden we start talking about that moment in the field and we start retelling the story of the fairy princess and the butterfly and how he'd lost the gold and the, the gold was this secret power that was going to unlock some you know and, and it was a really precious moment and it challenged challenged me on fatherhood it challenged me on how i did that whole thing because here i was kind of rushing to get to this coffee shop moment and this the, the activity was to walk down the street get to the coffee shop sit down have a drink and chat that's <laughs> i think and actually the the thing that was so deeply precious was when we just stopped was in that field and I would have ignored that field completely because I was like wanting to get to A to B and actually between A and B there is just a whole load of different levels before you get to B and in that my daughter saw this beautiful field with butterflies and snails and fancy things and the moral of that story is I think so often we kind of we so get in that kind of trip of getting to A to B to C activities 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 that we forget to see what is just to the left and right of us and I think in that moment of being that moment where we stop the moment where we just lay these activities to one side it's amazing what happens to our eyesight it's amazing what happens to our senses all of a sudden we start to feel things in a different way all of a sudden we start to see things in a different way we see a level beyond the level um so that's that's my little antidote i think it's perfect because it actually leads on to the fourth bit which we've talked about which is emergence which is that if you do get alongside people who think differently to you, in this case, your daughter, and you are actually willing to stop to tap into that sort of, he's gone for the Terry's chocolate orange, um, that deeper bit, that stopping, uh, that stillness, then you don't know, if you truly do that, you don't know what's going to happen next. You don't know what's going to emerge from that space if you let go of the original goal and the plan and you actually so sort of embrace that space. No, no sort of rhyming intended. But emergence, for me, is the opposite of kind of control and goal. It's like what happens when you do the rest of it. You kind of get this surprising quality that couldn't have happened without you being there so this little note is now written and i am going to plonk that in the suitcase and hopefully these values that hopefully build a quality a, a good basis for a friendship basically hopefully they will guide the further podcast conversations that people have along with the little bit in there about what are we not talking about? Some intros from each of us. Um, and then some thoughts, some questions from some people that have called in as well, just to stir it up. And hopefully between that little bit of structure and those values and people talking about what they really care about and what they see going on, I think we've got a bit of an interesting podcast. What do you reckon? Let's hope so. 
It's a bit scary, I've got to admit. I may never see this po- uh, this suitcase again. This three, four hundred quids worth of gear may be lost into the ether. It's a fun experiment, though, isn't it? It is. I've never seen it before where you truly, again, let go and sort of trust that we might be able to pass this on one person to another. Yeah. And we're planning on tracking it, right? Absolutely. Yeah. We should so geo-track a, it. Yeah. Oh, the tile. We need to buy a tile. Yeah, so we had a conversation about having a... Yeah, some sort of tracking device in there. Mm-hmm. So we can see wherever it ends up. Not as a security measure, but more to watch the adventure of the podcast, watch the conversations that spreads through the UK, hopefully Europe, and hopefully the rest of the world. Hawaii, You Hawaii. so want to get to Hawaii, don't you? <laughs> Please, anyone. <laughs> you do know that if you locate it in Hawaii, you don't have to fly out there. We can just get it put on a plane and send that. No, no, no. I'll, I'll find a way that they need me there. <laughs> You're like the milk tray man. You have to go and deliver. Um <laughs> Right, so into the final section. Well, it doesn't really matter which order people do things in, I guess. They can do it however they like. But I think it is important to hear the voice of people that aren't in whatever bubbles we're in. And so we'll try and have a listen to this and see what it inspires in us. Um, Should we say now, if you want to submit a voicemail, then as we mentioned earlier, that there's a number to call. I'll put it in the description of the podcast. Um, yeah if we've got it again so why don't you read that out josh it's 0208191872872 and so when you call that number and leave a voicemail the quality will be better than what we're about to play but this is this how is every one. it's how every good idea begins isn't it slightly crap version one and then you get a bit better once you start learning um but i think the stories will probably make up for it let's have a listen Hi, my name's Sean Croucher. Um, that was my son screaming down the phone, and he's important to me and means a lot to me. Hi. Wow, I'm remembering when I when I put this number out for people to leave a voicemail. I just said, say anything you want. Say something that means something to you. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's actually quite fitting following your fatherhood yeah. comments. Yeah. Of all the things in the world he could have said, could have gotten his soapbox about, he chose to talk about his screaming son that means the world to him. Yeah. That's beautiful, man. Was we it you get... in disguise? Yeah, it's me in disguise. <laughs> no, it's, it's nice as well. Because the in a world where you are you are encouraged to be this kind of perfect perfect parent and your kids are perfect and you don't display the the craziness of that of that world um it's just nice that your the voicemail started with a bit of a screaming, screaming kid child. yeah <laughs> you know absolutely i mean i literally don't know which one's which when we listen to these but hi Dave. hi um recording this message but I felt that I might have something a bit different for you really so I'd like to say something important to me is the children that I teach I'm a history teacher at the age of 22 so I feel that every child is always happy and comfortable with me for that hour and they feel that they matter and that they know that they can succeed within that hour Um, everyone matters all my students matter and I'm angry that social media is affecting my mental health and the students health that I teach everything's always a filter or everything's always perceived as perfect and it's not so as someone who's young I like to tell my students all the time that 
you know, I was there not that long ago and I hope that they know for first hand that they're not alone. Um, I'm happy that I can inspire every day in my job and that I make kids feel like they always succeed and be happy with me. I'm happy that I can be a friend, a parent and a teacher at my job. And yes, they a ramble, but yeah, and keep up the good work. Everything you do is so inspiring, Dave. And um, with my hard job, it gives me something to light up to every week. So thank you and good luck with everything. Wow. So I don't know what you guys can hear, but this girl's 22. She's a teacher. And I think the main thing she was saying is she just feels so pleased to be able to give her kids a safe place where one hour at a time they can just succeed and she can pay full attention and give them real care and let them know they're valuable. Um, And she's concerned about the effect of social media, not just on their lives, but on her life as well. Um, but yeah, really from the heart, that one. Yeah. And it, you know, it's, it's what we've been talking about, mate, of the, there's countless of countless stories like that. Yeah. Where, where people are in spaces that just don't get the headlines, you know, and, but the beauty of what they are doing the transformation that's taking place, the sacrifice they're doing and the impact they're, they're making into people's lives to acknowledge the, the worth of that. And we should be doing more of, I mean, the, if we, the redefinition of hero is just what you've heard there. Mm. You know, I think that's um, very beautiful. Very cool. Thanks for sending that in. That's awesome. That, that is, is brilliant. Good. That is cool. He's gone outside. He's done some stuff. I'm, I'm, I'm grinning. I'm grinning about that. Yeah. I think it's one thing if people just say you're you're great or yeah, you do yeah. good stuff. That's one thing. But when they sort of evidence that. Or you look like Mad Damon. <laughs> yeah. Cheers, mate. Um, it's chubby younger brother. <laughs> but no, but when someone's actually said, yeah, yeah, yeah you. you you were sort of the impetus that made me go out and do something. That's where it becomes like cool. Cause whether they've wrongly attributed that inspiration to me, uh, rightly or wrongly, at least I'm a part of that thing that got them to actually get, and you can hear it in his voice. <laughs> yeah, can't you? He, he is can. loving life. I mean, <laughs> yeah. give me some of that, <laughs> whatever he's got. I want some. So, and talking about the Matt Damon thing. <coughs> so I remember, so I remember he took me to a C.S. Lewis reading, Christmas reading. Do yeah, you remember that? Yeah, amazing. I loved yeah. it. I loved it. And I remember on the drive down, you were kind of telling me about your kind of the burden that you carry, <laughs> that, that, that's, um, that people kind of sometimes mistake you for Matt Damon from a distance. Obviously, when they get quite close, it's like something different. <laughs> but... So there you are telling and I'm thinking, oh, I just don't see it at all. You know, it's like, what? But I, but then we go to this event, yeah, sitting there, and no word of a lie, mate. 
like half an hour into the into the presentation there's a little break or something we're just like having a little wander around and a couple of people come up to us i think do you know what you look like a little bit like matt damon i don't remember this <laughs> do you remember at all? that no i don't remember any of this <laughs> and so this so this matt damon thing kind of rumbled around for a few years and then it went kind of like quiet well, I got fatter, didn't I? Yeah, and no, I was thinking you, know, you <laughs> yeah. probably just kind of like and you've balder. You've developed, you've grown your hair long, you've kind of become this woodland guru type character. And then I did a I did a post recently where you must have been in the picture or something. And uh and then all of a sudden it's like a, the, somebody came back saying, Hey, that person you're with. Does half look like Matt Damon? I really, I didn't know that. So it's kind of like this: the spirit of Matt Damon lives. <laughs> Matt Damon. <laughs> My favourite one actually was different to that, but it was an old, an old lady. I was waiting for a lift, and the the doors opened, and an old lady about four foot eleven just stared at me. Please tell me she wanted an autograph. No, she no, she just point <laughs> like lit pointed at me as if I was a waxwork model, and said Jamie Oliver, <laughs> and just walked off. No hello, no nothing. Just quite rude, frankly. <laughs> but that's true. You do have a, you have a, you've got more Jamie as you've got older than you, you have Matt Damon. You've escaped Matt Damon into Jamie Oliver. It's the chubby cheeks. I'm hearing it? a bit more James Corden these days, and uh, I think I need to I need to sort it out. But anyway, should we listen to one more, or are we, or, or are we there? I think we're good. We're good. Andy's finished. Andy's finished. It's Andy's way past finished. Andy's bedtime. It's, it's now 11 p.m. He's been. <laughs> oh, dear. Right. So, well, there we go. That is that is the first Around the Open Fire podcast. We have no idea where it's going. Um, thanks, Josh, for saying that you'll produce it. Really. A pleasure. Seriously. It's Thank a, you. Hopefully a real public service. Hopefully we'll get better with this over time and we'll build up kind of compounding interest as yeah. as we get the Toms in and Holly hopefully and a few other friends and then who knows where it will go from there. Hopefully Josh will get to Hawaii. Yeah. <laughs> It'd be lovely, wouldn't it? <laughs> <laughs> so if you are listening to this and you're thinking, I could do a really good job of being on this podcast, um Give us a shout. Drop us a line. Um, yeah, email e- me. Josh at corkovar.do. C-O-R-C-O-V-A dot D-O with a Josh at at the beginning. Yeah. And and call the number if you want to leave a voicemail. Um, we really, I really honestly, on a personal level, find it encouraging and fascinating. And it's good for me. It help, honestly helps me pop my own bubble listening to all your guys' voicemails. Please do leave a voicemail. Anything? Well, so so the format of the podcast, so next time, you're not here, Dave, but Andy's Whoa. hosting. This might be my only airing on the podcast. Is there anything you want to say? <laughs> uh, Matt. Well, <laughs> Jamie. I must say, it does feel a bit scary. James. That's the, that's the truth. There is a bit, shut up. There is a bit of a letting go <laughs> that that it feels like yeah, it's a letting go, and that's a little bit tricky. And you uh, struggle for letting go, don't you? I'm such a control freak. <laughs> well, I think, yes, I probably do. I do struggle a bit. But I think overall I get there. I just might be a bit slow. So <laughs> yeah, <laughs> have a great week. 
And hopefully we will hear you, see you, be with you next week on Around the Open Fire. I think next week's a bit keen. Why? Because it's not next week. But what, next week from once they listen to this? Not, we're not doing the weekly, are we? What did you think we were doing? Well, Andy's talking about two-week gaps. No, he's talking oh, about... all getting confusing there. He's talking about... Are we doing this every week? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's why you were like, yeah, yeah, it'll be fine, mate, it'll be fine. Is that serious? You didn't know it was weekly? <laughs> Legit didn't know. It's weekly. You said it was monthly when we first spoke about this. Nah. Nah. Weekly. Fine. You still in? I'm in. Yeah, okay, good. <laughs> he wants to get to Hawaii. <laughs> yeah. It speeds up the schedule, if anything, for Hawaii. <laughs> All right. Thank you guys so much for making time and for braving my cold heart. It's, uh, it's a privilege to have you here. Cheers, buddy. Thanks a lot. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.